Well, if you've got a Bible, track it down. We're in Matthew chapter 7 now. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we come to a section now on relationships. So let's read verses 1 to 12 of Matthew chapter 7, and we'll pray, and we'll get to work. Matthew 5, chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now as we've opened your word that you, by your spirit, through that word, would speak to us. We pray, Lord, that you would grant us wisdom in knowing how to relate to other people. Help us to be more like your son, who is relationally beautiful. So we pray for help. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Amen. This is talking about relational wisdom. How do we deal with people? And we learn four things here. First, we learn don't be critical. Secondly, we learn that we should try to be helpful. Then we learn that we should ask God for help with this. And finally, we should love people well. Don't be critical. Try to be helpful. Ask for God's assistance and love people well. Well, first, don't be critical. Jesus starts out the teaching by saying, do not judge or you too will be judged. It's an interesting saying there, and it's actually a a favorite text of our culture. Do not judge. In our culture, we have a narrative that says anyone can do whatever they want as long as it makes them happy. And then the assumption is we should not tamper with that. We should not judge other people. We should not render any judgments of them. They they can do whatever they want uh, as long as it is making them happy. It's basically a a proof text then people are using. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 to say, people can do whatever's right in their own eyes. And we have to ask, is that really what the Lord meant by this? And I would say it like this, it is not. We have to figure out what does he mean when he says, do not judge. Well, he actually expects us to make some judgments. The, the context tells us that. He tells us that there are people that he describes as 
dogs and pigs, and the last time I checked, I, I don't think that was a positive thing, right? I've never heard anyone, I've heard people call each other dog, and that can be, you know, like an endearing thing to do. That's my dog. Uh, but I've never heard anyone call someone a pig and have that be a good thing or a favorable thing. And Jesus is saying, do not judge, but there are people that you need to be aware of and respond accordingly to them. Furthermore, in the very next section, we'll deal with it, Lord willing, next week, he tells us that there are false prophets. And you would have to make a judgment. You would have to render a decision about an, an individual to recognize by their fruit what they're teaching is not in accord with what God has said. So you have to make judgments. You have to make certain kinds of, of judgments in order to, to do that, to know who are the dogs, who are the pigs, who are the false prophets. You would have to evaluate and respond accordingly. So he can't mean simply never, ever look at somebody else and assign a judgment to them. So what does he mean? Well, furthermore, we're not to judge. Um, we're, we're not to adopt that that mindset of do not judge uh, in this way, okay? So the idea in our culture of no judgment here, this is a judgment-free zone, we'd never render any, any, um, any judgments. Th th there's an incoherence to that worldview. Dr. D.A. Carson, he wrote a little book called The Intolerance of Tolerance, and, and it's a clever title because what he's pointing out is if you're trying to live by this worldview that you never, ever make judgments about other people, it's incoherent. Because by saying do not judge in that way, you're actually making a value statement. You're, you're saying don't judge. So what happens when you find someone who doesn't align with that worldview? You judge them, right? So there's an, there's an incoherence to it. And Carson's noting that not only is it incoherent, it actually becomes pretty violent. Like there's an intolerance of people who are claiming to be tolerant. So if you, if you break that code, you'll find out very quickly that they will judge you, that they will be intolerant toward you. So the, Matthew 7 verse 1 cannot mean simply never ever look at other people and make judgment statements. So what does it mean? What does it mean when Jesus says do not judge? We have to figure that out. We have to define the term. And judgment can be, it, it actually has a wide variety of, of meanings depending on the context. So to judge can mean, um, it, it can mean to, to make a, a subjective evaluation. It can mean to score, you know, to score something, to evaluate something based off of criteria. It can mean to make right. Uh, in the Bible, it's used in that way that ju the judgment of the Lord is where he's settling all accounts. He's making things right, or it can even mean to condemn, to, to look at something and, and to judge it in that sense. So it can, it can mean um, a subjective judgment. So we're at the building making decisions. Hey, what do you think about the door being here? And you can go, oh, I think it should be six inches this way. Ah, no, 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 let's bring it back. Okay, let's go three inches this way. That's a, that's a judgment, and it's subjective. You're just looking at something, and you're going, I think it should look like this. Now, Jesus can't mean never judge anything like that. That would mean ne Christians never have an opinion about anything. It just doesn't work. That judgment is not in view here. Or it could be the kind of judgment where you're scoring, where you're evaluating based off of criteria. I grew up skateboarding and snowboarding and wakeboarding. And in those sports, when there's a contest, you've got judges. And what they're looking at is the difficulty of the stunts 
the execution of the stunts, the style with which the stunts are being performed, and they're judging the, the performers in that way, the contestants in that way. Again, I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. Certainly, it can't be the idea of judgment where God is going to make things right. There's an idea of judgment that carries through the Bible where judge, the judgment of God and, and you know, by correlation, the judgment of his followers is actually intended to make the world as it should be. Where Abraham is speaking to the Lord and he says, will not the judge of the earth do right? And the answer there is very obvious. God, as judge, will make everything right. There's a judgment that has that feature about it, and that clearly is not what Jesus has in mind. I think what he has in mind here is that, that final version, which is the, the version of condemnation. It's condemning. It's looking at something, and it's saying this is worthless. This person is worthless. This, this is irredeemable. It's a judgment that is critical. It's a judgment that critically condemns others. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. We need to be careful that we do not become severely critical, fault finders, who are looking at people and who are accusatory. We look at other people and we go, you are not doing what you should. Therefore, in my heart, you are condemned. We should not be those sorts of people who are accusatory, looking at other people, fault finding, finding the things that they're doing wrong, and then and then accusing them. In fact, one of, the, one of the nicknames of the enemy is the accuser of the brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that's a functional title. That's one of the things that he loves to do. He loves to look around, find fault, and go, look, you are not living up to God's standard for your life. We don't want to join the enemy in his activity. We don't want to be living in a way where we're walking through the world, looking at other people, trying to find things that they're not doing right, and quickly pointing that out. Jesus is teaching us here, be careful about rendering judgment in that way. Do not judge. John Stott puts it like this. He says, no human is qualified to be the judge of his fellow humans, for we cannot read each other's hearts or assess each other's motives. To be censorious, well, that's an interesting word, right? But it, it basically means to be condemningly critical. To be censorious is to presume arrogantly, to presume arrogantly, to anticipate the day of judgment, to usurp the prerogative of the divine judge, in fact, to try to play God. That stopped me in my tracks this week. When we judge other people, it's like we are nudging God off of his throne and we're saying, I'll take it from here. And we're looking at another person and we're saying, they are worthless. They're irredeemable. And we're trying to play the role of God then and we're not, we're not fit for the task. And so we need to be careful not to judge in that way. It's taught in Romans 14 Verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their, own mask, to their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. This is a teaching of the Apostle Paul where he's saying, be careful about rendering judgment on the Lord's servants. Don't judge someone else's servant. So we need to be careful about this posture of the heart, and it comes very naturally to me, and I wonder if it's the same for many of us. 
oftentimes when we find other people in the world that we think are not living the way that they should, we quickly make conclusions about them. In the Bible, it looks like this. It looks like when the disciples were met with resistance and they looked to the Lord and they said, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? If, if there are people who are opposed to us, let's, let's be rid of them. And the Lord rebuked those disciples for having that mindset. It looks like when the first century followers of God would look at the Samaritans and they'd go, those people are unfit for this world. We, we care nothing about them. We want nothing to do with them. That's the, the posture of the human heart. We look at other people who are unlike us or who are not living in the way that we want them to, and we condemn them. And Jesus is saying, do not judge like that. Or you will be judged in a similar fashion. In fact, that's the point that he goes on to make in both verses 1 and 2. It's this, with the standard that you use, that is the standard with which God will evaluate you on the day of judgment. Verse 1 says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And then verse 2 says, for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So if you want the judgment day to go better for you, be gracious with other people. Be charitable with them. Because the, if you're strict, and if you're exacting, and if you're demanding, and if you're condemning, and that's how you treat other people, the Lord is saying, that's how I will evaluate you. If that's the way in which you're going to deal with other people on this planet, is to be incredibly critical of them, then that's the sort of evaluation that you're going to get on the day of judgment. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, he points out this tendency in us to be incredibly charitable with ourselves and demanding with others. So when we don't do what we should, we come up with excuses. We make provisions for ourselves, and we say, well, you know, it was kind of one of those weeks, so yeah, I just didn't, I didn't live up to what I would normally do. But with other people, we're demanding. And if they do something that we don't want them to do, then we allow that to irritate us greatly. Jesus is saying we ought to turn it exactly around. We ought to be incredibly charitable with other people and incredibly demanding of ourselves because the standard that we use for others will be the standard with which the Lord will evaluate us. So do not be condemningly judgmental. Secondly, this text teaches us to try to be helpful. Not only should we not be judgmental, we should actually seek to help other people. And one of the ways that we can do that is, like I just said, by avoid exaggerating the sin of others while minimizing our own. Avoid looking at other people and exaggerating the things that they might be doing wrong and then looking at our own hearts and going, oh, it's not that bad. We should do the opposite. Let's look at the illustration given here in verses 3 and 4. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? I mean, this is provocative language where Jesus is saying, it's like you're looking at somebody and you're noticing that they have this little speck in, in their eye and you go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move toward them and I'm going to help them and I'm going to help remove that speck from their eye. But meanwhile, you have like a two by four sticking out of your own face and you're coming up to somebody and you're going, hey, let me help you with your problem. And they're looking at you like, this doesn't make sense. Jesus is telling us that we need to be careful of having that sort of posture, that we 
don't recognize our own sinfulness. This is, this is interesting to me, but the Bible here assumes our sin. If you're going to try to help other people, the Bible is suggesting you have problems. You need to address your own stuff first before you could be of any help to other people. And in fact, the way that you should view your sin in proportion to anyone else's is you, yours is way worse. Right? So when we think about our own hearts and then we want to try to help other people as we try to make some connections there, the, the thing that we should conclude is, I am the worst sinner that I know. In fact, Paul would use the term chief of sinners. Like if you want to know who's in charge of sin around here, I'm your guy. I am the chief of sinners. And the reason I can say that sincerely is because my heart is the only one that I know of with that level, with that degree of intimacy. I know what goes on inside of my heart. And as we've been through the Sermon on the Mount, we've noticed all the different motives and, and all the different things that are going on on the interior that the Lord is looking at. And when we get honest about that, we go, oh yeah, that one, that one also I'm failing on. So I know my own heart better than any of your hearts. So I know in here, I'm the chief of sinners from my perspective. When I look through my own soul, what do I see? The two by four. I'm the one with the giant plank. So I need to pay attention to my own heart and my own soul. But this illustration is reminding us that we are to help. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So deal with your, your own heart first. And having done that, you are supposed to help other people. In fact, the illustration itself points in that direction, right? When you get something in your eye, how do you get it out? I think about this, especially in the first century, where mirrors would be hard to come by. If you have something in your eye, you need other people. You, you have to go to them and you have to go, I think I have something in my eye. Can you help me out here? And then you make some weird face, right? You're like opening your eye and you're looking all over the place and, and, and you need help. But the Bible is assuming that and suggesting here that we need to be helpful to other people. But we have to deal with our own stuff first and then we'll be able to see clearly to help other people deal with the speck in their own eye. Now, when we do this, there's a couple of things to note based off of the illustration. You should be incredibly tender. There are very few people who I'm going to enlist to help me get a speck out of my eye, even within my household, right? No offense, Harrison, I'm not coming to you going, hey, dude, I got a speck in my eye. Can you help me out here? No, because he'd be tempted to go get a sword or, uh, you know, a utensil that would be inappropriate or just plunge a finger right into my eye. So I'm not going to ask him for help. No offense to my daughter, Reese. She is very sweet and very tender, but she would not have the skill necessary to do it. I would go to my wife, and the expectation is that there would be a tenderness there, that there would be a care there, that there would be a deliberate intention of helping me out. But the idea is there. As we are believers, we want to help other people. We deal with our own stuff first in order that we might tenderly go to others and help them with their own struggles. And as you do this, you note also that your sinfulness actually makes you a better helper. And I'm not saying that excuses your sin. It just helps you to relate. That if you have a plank in your own eye and you're dealing with that, then when you go to somebody else, it's actually endearing. 
They believe that they can entrust themselves to you. It's kind of like when I broke my wrist at, at the skate park. First time I broke my arm here at the tree farm. And in my mind, it was such a traumatic thing, and I had never seen anything like it. So the only thing that I could think of was this child that I saw at a playground with a prosthetic arm. And so in my mind, that's where it went. It was that catastrophic for me. I'm going to be a miniature Captain Hook. That, that was what was going through my, my brain, because that's all I could imagine as a young child. Then when I was a little bit older and I was at a skate park and I broke my wrist, again, it was very traumatic. And you begin to wonder, what, you know, how is this going to get repaired and will it ever work the same and all these different things. But there was a guy there, a little bit older than me, much better skateboarder than I was, and he skated up to me and he just got down on my level and he said, it's going to be okay. I broke my wrist a while back. And they said it and it's fine and it works you know, we're just like normal. And he said, here's what's going to happen. And he kind of walked me through that, that process. And the fact that he had experienced something similar to me, it helped me to navigate that moment. It, it, it brought a peace to a chaotic moment for me. And so that's how it works with dealing with sin. When you come to somebody and, and you have the appearance that you don't struggle with anything, you're not a safe individual. You seem like a, like a foreigner, like I don't want to entrust myself to you if you don't have anything that you're struggling with. But when people recognize that you too are a sinner and a struggler and you, you present with that, then all of a sudden you become a safe individual. I remember one of the parents of the teens when I was a student minister and we were having a private conversation and I was telling her about some of the stupid things that I did as a teen. And, and I just saw her light up. And then she just articulated, like, because she had two kids in the youth group at the time, and she said, that is so encouraging that you were such an idiot. <laughs> because that gives me hope that my kids might make it. You see, when we recognize that our sin is something that we deal with, and we're honest about it, it actually helps other people to entrust themselves to us. And we are called to help. But we need to do that with the posture of awareness that we are the chief of sinners. Well, he goes on to say that we need to be careful with how we deal with other people. Again, this whole section is on wisdom in relationships, and, and he's teaching here, don't expect others to respond different than their nature. The next illustration is that of the dog and the pig. Look at verses 6 and following. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs if you do. They may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't give, to, don't give your pearls to pigs. Now, pearls in, in, in Matthew, it's the, it's the value of the kingdom. So in Matthew 13, verses 45 and 46, Matthew explains what he means when he uses the word pearl. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. He's saying, the pearl is the kingdom of heaven. It's something to do with the kingdom of heaven. And so when Jesus says, don't throw your pearls to pigs, don't give what is sacred to dogs, he's saying, don't take the valuable things of the kingdom and give them to somebody who is not ready to receive them. Don't give them to dogs and pigs because they don't know what to do with that. So if I take my Bible home today and I say, Winnie, our little dog, 
I want you to take care of this until next week. And I put it in her mouth. This is your responsibility when this is my preaching Bible and this is what I use at church. So here you go. The fault would be with me. She eats everything. She eats our shoes. She eats anything that's left out. She'll eat it, uh, which is why she's sick today and I have to rush home because her tummy's upset. But she eats everything. But if I give her something sacred and she responds like she normally does, whose fault is that? That's the point of this passage. If I give what's sacred to somebody who is not willing to receive it, and then I hold the, my expectation is they should have, they should have received that gladly. This is valuable. They should have taken that to heart. Or if I take my, my wedding ring, I had a friend who had a pet pig. And at first it was like this cute little thing. And I think the name, the name of the pig was Pig. Um, very clever. But then it got huge. It was like this big. It was giant. It lived in his apartment. And I would go over to his apartment and this thing was this, you know, Foul creature. But imagine if I was like, here's my wedding band, pig. Uh, will you please take this? What do you, pigs don't know what to do with that. That's the whole point of the passage. You're taking something valuable. You're giving it to somebody whose nature is not aware of the realities of the things of the kingdom. They don't appreciate it the way that they could or should. But if I hold them to the standard that you ought to value this like I value it, I'm not even being realistic. That's one of the things that this passage is teaching. R.T. France puts it like this. Holy and valuable things must be given only to those who are able to appreciate them. If you have the truth of the kingdom, if you have the pearl of the kingdom, then recognize that how you give it away to other people and what you expect to do with that, them to do with that, it's on you. You need to meet people where they're at. If I, if I go to somebody and I hold them to the standard that I presently live by, having been a Christian for the majority of my life and spent so much time as a pastor and preacher studying the scriptures, if I look at other people and I hold them to my standard, here's what this is saying. That is unreasonable. That is unreasonable. And I'm not saying that I'm like, you know, some super Christian or anything crazy like that. I'm just saying when we deal with other people, we need to be aware of where they're coming from. And we need to love them enough and be wise enough to meet them at their level. Timothy Keller, he puts it like this. He, when he was preaching on this, he, he was noting that everyone has their own spiritual journey. And we need to be careful to allow them to be kind of in their lane, doing their thing. We need to be, as we take this idea of not judging others and and then not placing our own expectations on them, he's, he's pointing out that not everyone has the same experience. So in John 21, when uh, the Lord was dealing with Peter, and he's saying, Peter, here's what you have coming, and it's kind of rough. You're going to be stretched out. You're, you're gonna, other people are going to dress you. You're going to have a martyr's death. And what, what does Peter do? Hey, what about him? Right? What about John? And Jesus basically says, that's none of your business. You do you. I've got something for you that is unique to you. And so we need to be able to care for people in that way, to be aware of where they're at in their spiritual journey and patient enough with them to work with the moment in time that they're presently living with. Well, then we move into the next thing, which is the third point of what we're dealing with. It's asking God for assistance. This is not a new topic. You know, sometimes I'll talk to people and we don't always talk in a linear way. 
And so there are a couple people that, I'm, that I'll talk to, and we'll go from topic to topic. And it's just flying all over the place. And it's like, okay, buckle in and just keep up, okay? We're talking about one thing, and there's not even a pause in the conversation. We're on a new subject. That's not what Jesus is doing here. It's not like he's talking about something, and then he's like, oh, well, now we're moving into prayer. And this is unrelated. No, no, no. This is all a part of the same idea. It has to do with relational wisdom. The way that I know that is verse 12, where he gives us the, um, the golden rule. It's a relational rule. He says, so. He's talking about prayer, and then he goes, so, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. So it's all connected. It's all a part of the same piece. What Jesus is saying here is, if you're going to be relationally wise you're going to find out very quickly how much you need help. That's the point. Prayer is the only way that we could ever pull this off. If you're trying to live the Christ-like life and you're trying to deal with other people with that patience, with that graciousness, one of the things that will happen is you will need to ask God for assistance, which is the point that he's making here. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. God is waiting for your request. So go ahead and get after it. If you want to be relationally wise, ask God for help. He is eager to answer. So we need to be the people who are praying for God's assistance, praying that God would help us to love people well. Prayer could then become an evaluative tool of our own hearts. If we pray like the, the Pharisee in the parable that the Lord gave, where there was a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they go up to the temple, the Pharisee prays like this, Lord, thank you that I'm so great, and thank you that I'm not like this bum. And if that's the way that we're praying we're nowhere near what Jesus is teaching here. We need to be the kind of people who are asking the Lord, please, Lord, give me wisdom to deal with other people. We should be praying more like Solomon, who when he gets a, the opportunity to pray to the Lord, what does he say? Lord, please give me wisdom so that I might lead this great people of yours. Nobody is sufficient to this task. And the Lord hears that and he commends it. He says, that is an incredible prayer. Because you asked for that, and not for wealth, or not for notoriety, or not for any of these other things. I'm going to give you wisdom, and wealth, and notoriety. See, we should be praying, asking, seeking, knocking, Lord, help us. When I deal with people, my natural inclination is not, is not to treat them as you do. My natural inclination is to judge and condemn, to play God, to condemn them, to, to call people worthless, and to write them off indefinitely. We need to be people who are praying. And, and God will answer. There's a promise given here that God will give us what we need. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If we go home today and Harrison asks for lunch and I say, here's a rock. That doesn't make any sense. It does not compute. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? If you're going to pray to God, help me here. Help me. God will give you what you need. He will give an appropriate response to your prayer, but you need to be asking God for his assistance. And finally, and briefly, we're called to love people well. Verse 12, 
So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is a breathtaking thing. It's cherry-picked by many. It's the golden rule, and so it it is taught widely, this concept of, of doing to others what we would have them do to us. But here Jesus is saying, here's the point, so in everything, this is what you are to do. Love them like you love yourself. Treat them like you treat yourself. Love people well, and this is breathtaking to me. He says, for this, loving people well, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is not some optional track for super Christians. Loving people well is not some, you know, thing that that you can take or leave as a Christian. He's saying the whole Bible is pointing in this direction. To love people well is what this is about. To be able to love people in this way is what the law and the prophets are are truly teaching us. It's a summary teaching. The summary of the Bible is loving people well like Christ loves us. He was willing to look at his enemies and he was willing to sacrifice and die for us. He was willing to be patient and gracious with us. He was slow to anger. He was abounding in love. He was compassionate and gracious and he calls us to do the same. So Christians, love people well for Christ's sake. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help us. We are asking, seeking, and knocking, and we're admitting our two-by-four planks hanging out of our faces. We are quick to condemn other people. So help us, Lord, to deal with our own sins so that we can be helpful to other people. Help us to be non-judgmental in the sense that uh, we don't want to be condemning and accusatory and critical and fault-finding. Help us to love people well like you have loved us. And let that be a beautiful testimony to the kind of God that you are, that you change people, that you take people like us and you make us more like your son. Help us to do that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.